production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's my pleasure to introduce our forum today, the final forum in our Help Wanted series about workforce development. Today we're having a conversation on apprenticeships in the 21st century. Throughout this year-long series, we've identified the many areas in which America is experiencing a skills gap, despite record low unemployment. In December, about 6.6 .6 million Americans were unemployed but companies had almost as many job openings. In many cases, the people looking for work simply aren't qualified for the positions that companies need to fill. That is, they aren't qualified yet. Apprenticeship programs are one solution to this predicament. Long associated with the construction trades, today's apprenticeship programs span multiple industries, including IT, financial services, healthcare, and cybersecurity. And they're not just for high school graduates who don't want to attend college. And, or they're also for workers hoping to skill up from former teachers to displaced manufacturing laborers. They're all benefiting from apprenticeship programs. Today, we'll hear more about the changing role apprenticeship programs are playing in our local employment landscape as well as around the country. The format for our forum today is a little different. First, we'll hear a short presentation from Dr. Pamela Howes. She's Program Director of Work-Based Learning at the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. After that, IdeaStream reporter and producer Darielle Snipes will moderate a panel with local experts. And finally, we'll have our traditional City Club Q&A where all of you get to play a role. So let's begin. Dr. Pamela House joined the National Fund in August of 2017 and leads its efforts to expand apprenticeship and work-based learning. Previously, she was the statewide director of apprenticeship, business, and veteran services for the North Carolina Department of Commerce and worked in private industry for both Siemens and Merck as a chief learning officer on workforce development and apprenticeships. Before that, she was an MP. No kidding. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Western Carolina University, a Master of Science degree from Troy State University, and a Doctorate of Education from North Carolina State University. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Dr. Pamela House. Thank you very much. So for those of you who are doing, can you hear me? If you're doing the math, I was an overachiever and I started my career when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> And so you can tell I'm not from Ohio either, right? Hey, y'all, right? <laughs> so I had a great trip yesterday um, from Charlotte to Cleveland, stepped beside a native Cleveland uh, resident. He was delightful. We talked a lot about workforce. He wanted to know what I did, and I told him. He said, you have the coolest job I've ever heard. And I said, you're right, because I get to do what I love every day. That really changes lives. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that <clears throat> Excuse me today. I don't know, something happened in the hotel last night. My nose started running, and I thought, oh, no, I can't be sick tomorrow. And so um, right now in the U.S., there are 40, 488,000 open manufacturing jobs in the U.S. So how many people in here work in manufacturing space? So some, some of the panelists I know do. 
Um, it's, it's really interesting what's happening with the resurgence of manufacturing in the U.S. Uh, we have job gains in manufacturing in the last 12 months that have been greater than they've ever been since 1995. And so there's really been a, a, a renaissance of manufacturing across the U.S. And I was doing my homework on Cleveland because I wanted to be able to speak specifically about what's going on here. Um, Ohio is the third in the nation for the size of its manufacturing workforce. That's pretty impressive. And as I was flying in over to Cleveland, I saw lots of manufacturing facilities um, here in the Cleveland area. <clears throat> Last year, there were 685,000 people that were working in manufacturing just in the state of Ohio alone. And that's a pretty big number. Um, and Dan actually got this number right. He said, I think we're about 13% of all of our workers uh, in manufacturing. It's 12.9. And that, that's a lot of people. <laughs> he said, I don't know how I did that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, average wage of $59,000. That's pretty impressive. And that Ohio manufacturers contributed um, $106 billion to the economy, which represents 16.2% of the state's economic output. However, the average age of any manufacturing worker in Ohio is, anybody want to guess? It's 43. Yeah, 43 years old is the average age. And in Cleveland, I found that most 18 to 29-year-olds are working in the service sector, in restaurants, in retail, at Starbucks, at Verizon. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why that's particularly troubling to me. So you, you have in Cleveland alone 127,900 people who work in manufacturing. And, I, and you have lots of open manufacturing positions right now uh, in the state. The average hourly wage for a machinist in Cleveland is $19.93 per hour. And my guess is if they're good machinists, they can probably get all the overtime that they want. That's a very good, livable, sustainable wage. So how many of you heard that across the nation we have a skills gap? Yeah. How many of you think we might have an interest gap? Yeah, it, I think it's really both, don't you? And I'm going to talk a little bit about, about why I think that's true. Um, I've done a lot of research in this area. I really love uh, work-based learning, but I'm especially passionate about apprenticeship. And in 2015, when I wrote my dissertation, I wrote a phenomenology study on youth apprenticeship, so high school students going into registered apprenticeship programs in advanced manufacturing. Um, I relied heavily on a study that was done by the Harvard School of Education. It's called the Pathways to Prosperity Report. If you like to read about this kind of thing, it's a great report for you to read. But they really talk about our high school kids and how there is a forgotten half. And they call those the middle skills kids. And these are the kids that maybe aren't as academic as other kids. They like to do hands-on learning, things like that, but they've not really had the opportunity to do that in today's modern high schools. Um, they're caught up in the one way to win is to go get a four-year degree game. That's what we've done to our young people. And oftentimes, we've done that, uh, uh, you know, the parents are encouraging them because they think that's the only way for their kids to be better off than they were, is to go away to college to get a four-year degree. And listen to this number. The majority of these students will fail. Only 55% of those students that start a four-year degree will finish, and it'll take them an average of six years to do so. And so how do you think a lot of these kids are paying for college? Student loans. So we're going to talk a little bit about that too. 
Many of these students will not continue after their first semester, and those that graduate will be either underemployed or unemployed because they can't get a job in their subject matter expertise that they studied in school. Many of them will leave college and they'll go to work in the service sector where you know kids can't make a livable wage working in the service sector, so they'll have to work two or three jobs uh, to pay their bills and to make their loan payments. A third of those students don't complete any post-secondary degree or credential within six years, nothing. So they go to college, they take some classes, they fall out, they go to work in the labor market, and they fail. This is a little quiz for you. I'm an educator at heart. How many jobs in the United States require a four-year degree? Thirty-five percent. Thirty-five percent of the jobs in the nation require a four-year degree. So another little quiz question. How many jobs in the U.S. require some sort of post-secondary credential? Yeah, 59%. So do you see what we're doing? It's pretty tragic what we're doing. The unemployment rate for those under 25 is typically twice as high as the overall unemployment rate for the area. In Cleveland, your unemployment rate is 4%. So that means 8% 8, 8 of your young people are floundering because they can't find a job, they can't pay their student loan debt, and they can't pay their other bills. But get this statistic. The unemployment rate for college graduates is 19%. That's a pretty big number. These kids are going away to school and they don't get good advice for, for labor market outcomes. And they get in programs like psychology, sociology, communications. And when I meet these kids and I say, what are you gonna do with that? They go, I don't know, right? What are you gonna do with that? And so they're not getting really good guidance and advice on the front end and they're entering programs where they're not going to be successful when they graduate. The average uh, college on-campus cost is about $22,000 a year. Now, you heard me say before that it's going to take, on average, six years for a kid to graduate. So if they're borrowing at $22,000 a year, they're going to graduate with a $66,000 student loan debt. Um, and I think this is interesting because I was an Army officer, and back in the day when I went in the Army, you had to have a GED or a high school diploma to get in the Army. What has happened in today's society is the Bachelor of Arts degree has become the equivalent of the GED. Data proves that technical credentials have the potential to outpace the wages of those earning a four-year bachelor's degree. So I can go to work as a machinist, and I'm going to make more than somebody that may have a four-year degree. We're also seeing something we call reverse transfers, and those are people who go to college, get a degree, can't get a job, and so they go back to the community college to get a credential so they can work. 27% of people with occupational licenses and certificates and 31% of people with a two-year associate's degree earn more than people with a four-year college education. So students and parents are really not fully informed of all the educational and workforce opportunities that exists, and I can tell you, I, I meet with young people all the time, they don't have a clue what manufacturing looks like. They don't have a clue what a machinist is. They don't know what a mechatronics engineer does. Um, in my former life, I was the chief learning officer at Siemens Energy, and we were doing a huge expansion. Uh, we were adding a half a million square foot of factory, we were hiring 800 people, and we could not find machinists. They just weren't out there. And so we decided to start a youth apprenticeship program at the local area high school. And we would actually go to the high schools and recruit the kids. 
and make a presentation about what we were looking for and the kind of jobs we had. And every single time we did it, a kid would raise their hand and go, what's a machinist? They had no idea because they've never been taught that in high school. They would say, we drove by this factory every day on our way to school and we had no, no clue what you did in there. So very ill-informed. And I, you know, how many of you use, use Google Maps? Everybody in here? At least once a day, right? <laughs> so what happens when you put an address in your Google Maps and you make a wrong turn? She reroutes you, right? So that's what's happening to these young people. They're, they're having to leave school, get a dead-end job, then try to figure out how they're going to get a better job, and they have to reroute back into the educational system to get some kind of post-secondary credential. Um, we really have to start educating students and parents and teachers as early as the eighth grade. That's where we have to start to really help them frame their thinking around what they want to be when they grow up. And we need to educate the teachers. They went to school to be teachers. They don't know what, what these jobs look like out there. So you employers, you know, I really challenge you to get the teachers in your facility and let them see what these jobs look like and learn what these jobs pay. Study shows that there's a stigma associated with community college. I know that because I've written a research report on that. You ask kids what they're going to do. I'm going to go to London to the School of Art. And I'm like, how are you going to pay for that? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll get a scholarship. No, you'll get a student loan and you'll be in debt the rest of your life to pay that off. <laughs> they don't realize that. According to the U.S. today, this is staggering. There is outstanding student loan debt totaling $1.2 trillion with more than 40 million borrowers with an average of $29,000 in debt. And delinquency rates in the U.S. are 10% and the default rate is $120 billion because people can't pay their student loans. So I want to talk a little bit about apprenticeship before we get there because that's what I really love. And we have seen apprenticeship change lives for young people. Um, we know that school-to-work transition programs work, so internships, externships, co-ops, uh, pre-apprenticeships, full apprenticeship programs, all of those really work. And I have seen it transform the lives of young people. So we know that apprenticeship programs are employer-driven. The employers get to drive, right? It connects the education and work simultaneously. It combines on-the-job training and related instruction. It results in a national industry-recognized credential that can, they can take anywhere they want to go. It's a flexible training strategy. It can be for new hires, but it can also be for your incumbent workers. We talked about that a little bit before we came in here. What better way to reward your existing workforce than to put them in an educational pipeline to help them succeed at a higher level? Do you think that would help you build loyalty within your organizations? We've seen that work with apprenticeship. Um, these kids are not afraid of technology, I will tell you that. We put them on a highly tech, technologically advanced manufacturing floor, they're not afraid to push the button. Our old guys were afraid to push the button. Um, and we know there are a lot of benefits uh, with apprenticeship. I wanna talk a little bit about veterans because I am one. Um, I was fortunate to get my education before I went in the Army, but, you know, the GI Bill is a great tool for our exiting veterans, and vet apprenticeships are a, an approved way for them to get into a program, to use their GI Bill, and to get a job when they're finished. How many of you knew that high school students can enter a registered apprenticeship as early as age 16? Federally approved to do that. 
And now with changes in the USDOL policy, employers can hire their youth through temporary staffing agencies if they need to. So limits their risk, limits their liability, and the staffing agency can actually uh, cover workers' comp for them. The average starting salary upon completion of a registered apprenticeship is $50,000 a year. And completing a registered apprenticeship program equals $300,000 more in earnings over the course of your career. When I say that to young people, I say you have no excuse not to have $300,000 in your 401k when you get done, right? You should be saving that money along the way. We know that apprenticeship programs result in increased workforce skill, productivity, and morale. And we're seeing a resurgence across the nation of high school to youth apprenticeship programs. I, I'm from North Carolina, did y'all notice? <laughs> yeah. We, we have doubled our number of youth apprentices in the last three years in North Carolina, and we've done some things to help that along. But our employers rave about these young people and how productive they are, um, how skilled they are, how technologically savvy they are. And we're seeing other states like Colorado, Wisconsin, North and South Carolina, that have had significant growth, not only in manufacturing apprenticeships, but also in IT, healthcare, and cybersecurity. So those are the apprenticeships of the 21st century right there, those high-tech jobs. Um, we have a National Fund Collaborative in Cincinnati, and Cincinnati has decided to use apprenticeship as a way to increase their high school graduation rates. So they're starting uh, young people in high school in apprenticeships and sterile processing and plan to add many other healthcare careers along the way. We also have a great example in North Carolina called the Guilford Apprenticeship Partners. They're a group of manufacturers who are working collectively together. We talked about that a little bit ago, you know, working together. And they actually added 85 youth apprentices in August. Um, we also have a tuition waiver in North Carolina, and I was talking to these folks. You need to go to your General Assembly, and you need to say, we need dollars to help grow apprenticeship in Ohio. Um, we have a tuition waiver in North Carolina. If you're a high school kid, you go into a registered apprenticeship, your related instruction at the community college is free for the life of your apprenticeship. It doesn't cost the employer anything. It doesn't cost the young person anything. So these are things that you can be doing to help your own local community to get um, apprenticeship programs started. So what happens when you can't fill your jobs? How many of you are having trouble filling your jobs? I know a lot of you are, and so, you know, it, it affects your productivity, and people have to work overtime, and that affects morale. It upsets your customers. We can't, you can't make your delivery dates. It affects profits because you can't accept orders. I have a friend in North Carolina. His name is Rob Simmons. He owns a, a company called Machine Specialties Incorporated, and they actually machine aircraft parts. And Rob told me three years ago, he said, I left $9 million of work on the table that I did not bid on because I was afraid if I got it, I couldn't produce. He started a youth apprenticeship program three years ago. They now have 27 young people, apprentices in their factory. He said it's changed their entire business model. So these are great stories across the years of what we've seen and how these things work. How many baby boomers in the room? Oh, don't be shy. Come on, don't be shy. You know, we're, we're called the silver tsunami. Did you know that? Because we're all thinking about our next step in life, which is to retire. Um, we're going we're gonna to enter the healthcare systems, right? And there are no people to fill those jobs in healthcare. It's a problem. 
it's a real problem. So healthcare apprenticeships could be a great way uh, to grow your local economy. 12% of the jobs in Cleveland will be in healthcare in the next five years. So I always say, you know, I'm an educator at heart, you're going to have homework here. So what do you plan to do about it? Because you can't wait until the bleeding is really bad to start solving your problem. You've got to be thinking three, four years in advance about what you're going to do. I always say only when the bleeding is bad enough will you do something about it, right? When it starts to really impact your business. So I'm just going to tell a real fast story and I'm going to sit down. I'm going to tell you about a 17-year-old Hispanic girl named Rebecca. She weighs about 85 pounds. Her parents did not speak English. She entered an apprenticeship program at Siemens. She got a two-year degree at the community college. Using tuition reimbursement, she went on to finish her engineering degree. And two weeks ago, I got a call from the training manager who worked for me at that time, and he said, I just wanted you to know uh, Rebecca just took a full-time engineering position in the plant making $75,000 a year. And that's what you need to remember. Thank you. Dr. House, and now we're going to have a panel discussion with some local experts talking about some of the programs that they have in their industries and in theirs. We're going to be speaking with Linda Ditchkovich. She is the apprenticeship program manager at Manufacturing Works. Jeff, Lip I'm going to get it wrong, sorry, <laughs> Lipnevichitz, and he is the senior manager um, of workforce development at Lincoln Electric Company. And we have Lori Pogel, manager of hourly workforce development at Swage Law. Please welcome our panelists. So, just real fast, I know that Dr. Howes kind of gave us the overview of, of what's happening in the region and the United States when it comes to uh, the skills gap that we are facing. But the one question I really want to know from, from any of you is, why did we as a society get away from apprenticeships, which seem to be working and helping employ prospective employees and employers? <laughs> I, I, I yeah. So, so there, you, if you read the Pathways to Prosperity report, they talk a lot about the fact that students were tracked. They used that word tracking 20 years ago. So we were tracking students in the, in the university track. We were tracking students in the vocational education track. And it was really a way to get away from doing that. Um, so so it's, it's a very political term, tracking. And so I know Linda and, um, or Jeff and Lori, you guys have programs in your prospective businesses. And you guys at Hourly Management, our workforce development, you, I'm sorry. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Linda, you at, um, at uh, Manufacturing Works, thank you. You guys um, help small businesses and other businesses with getting uh, off the ground. Because it, it can be difficult to start a type of program within a different organization. Can you just talk about some of the things that you guys are doing to help businesses? Yeah, it's a lot. Um, I tried to set up an apprenticeship at a last company I was at and to come up with all of the skill sets that somebody needs to do a job, you could be there for years. And so what we're doing is helping to small companies who don't have a full-time HR department we already have that structure built in so that they can just implement. What we're looking from them is to find that incumbent, that current person that's going to be great to move up as the silver tsunami hits. One place I work, one company I work with, they have a guy who's 80. I think he's decided he's cutting oh, wow. back to two days. Wow. Um, that 
but he's he's started some of that internally, but it's to get that knowledge and to to get that transfer happening because when you're 24, you think you know this, but you really know this, and when you're 80, you know this, and you just need to have that encouragement to talk with and to work with younger people to get that help them grow their skills. And so, how many companies do um, are working? Are you working with? I'm right working now? with 10 right now. And how many? Uh, Most onesie twosies, and they're piloting it right now, and so they're looking at how successful is this. And the nice thing about the apprenticeship is that it's work, earn, and learn at the same time. So they're getting 90 percent of their education is on the job, and there's structured skill sets that you need to learn. And then you're going to class for that ten percent to help because you always need that book. You need that book knowledge, that theory. And you, I always tell people you need to know the rules before you can break them. And so they've got to know the rules before they can go out and go and break them and see, okay, book says we're supposed to do this, but at work we do this and this and this because we know that works. Okay. Yeah. And then, Jeff, at Lincoln Electric, you, you guys recently started a program at the Early College, Early Career Program. It's a two-year program where you target juniors and seniors, and they get hands-on experience while getting paid but also taking classes. Can you just talk a little bit about that program and how it's, and how it's been helpful? Sure, I'll just say, um, so Lincoln Electric, we, we manufacture welding, cutting, and brazing products, and we uh, have about 1,300 employees that are directly tied to manufacturing. So as has been described, we've been challenged. We've had growth last year, and so keeping up with growth, but also the retirements, the escalating retirement specific on skilled trades. So we've had to transform the way that we, uh, we've looked for talent, and one of the things that we experimented with and we've been very pleased with is we're working with an organization named Magnet in Cleveland that facilitates putting together employers and schools that are promoting experiential look, uh, learning at, at the high school level. So we have, uh, we, we're a host site to two schools. We host uh, Ginn Academy and John Marshall High School, Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Uh, the one program comes in once a week uh, for about six hours. The other one comes in uh, twice a week for about two and a half hours each visit. And what we do is we try to give them, uh, the students, uh, exposure to exactly what is manufacturing. So not just a, a plant tour, uh, not just digging into to making somebody an expert welder, an expert machinist. We want to give them exposure to printed circuit board manufacturing, uh, welding, uh, plastic injection molding, steel stamping, forming, bending, uh, electrostatic powder paint. Uh, CNC machining, uh, robotics, and so on. So they each week they have an opportunity to go through, uh, meet with a subject matter expert, learn career paths of the various employees, and uh, uh, and then and then they come away with either uh, take a quick quiz to verify they they learn something during their rotation, or they they take something home with them. So I, I, we've had excellent experience with that so far. That's great. And, and then, Lori, I mean, at Swagelock, you guys don't necessarily have an apprenticeship program. It's more of like an internship program. Can you just walk me through the difference in exactly what you guys do? Sure. So uh, much like Jeff, I'll let you know what Swagelock does. So we're a leading manufacturer in fluid systems and fluid systems components. So a lot of what we do here in Seoul and at our uh, headquarters and at the various facilities in that area is machining. So we're machining typically metal parts that are going into petrochemical, chem and refining, um, that sort of space. So much like Jeff, we participate as part of Magnet's ECEC program as well. And our partner schools for that program are uh, Wycliffe and MC Squared STEM. And much like Jeff's, they rotate through that. Um, in addition, we have a parallel pathway for those um, technical schools that offer advanced manufacturing programs. 
and we look at those students as interns. Um, we partner heavily in this space with CVCC, with Polaris, with Mentor now, um, and we sit on the technical review boards of those um, schools to make sure that what they're teaching is in line with the roles and the skills that we're looking for at SwageLock. And then we offer those students the opportunity to come in and intern in the summer between their junior and senior year. Um, we put them through the same onboarding and initial technical training programs that a new hire would if we were hiring them full time. Then they're able to return to us and work part time um, during the school year of their senior year with the hope that we will then go on to uh, offer them full time employment once they've completed their senior year. So right now, within the ECEC program, we have uh, 20 students, 10 juniors, 10 seniors. Um, we have been very, very pleased, especially with the second cohort of, of juniors. Um, really very bright, um, articulate young folks that we are very happy to have within our teams. And we have about seven um, students of, of varying years uh, from the Polaris program as well that are participating. And you know it's great for us as an employer, but it's also been a wonderful opportunity. The ECEC program was recently recognized um, by uh, Bank of America's Community Builders, and so we had some students who were able to speak about their side of the experience. And we had one young woman who is a junior with us this year who stood up and talked about her experience, uh, Shelby, and and we could not have paid her to be a better advertisement for. <laughs> Uh, for manufacturing and manufacturing careers and the doors that this will then open for her and and we saw a really nice draw between um, the, the first year of the program and the second year of the program by the students who are now seniors talking it up at their home schools to the juniors mm -hmm. so it's definitely catching on where there was that initial uh, I think for a very long time push of the only pathway was a college pathway um, now folks are actually exploring other alternatives and we're happy to be a part of that. And so when you guys are going into the schools or talking to students, a lot of people, um, a lot of students are, are shocked or they don't, they're like, what's manufacturing? I mean, are you guys shocked to hear that the kids are, are asking that very simple question? And then once they realize what they could do with it or the money they could make, that they're very excited to try, try it out. Yeah, I'll share two things. Um, one is, uh, so I've been in manufacturing for probably longer than I care to share. And, but you started um, in kindergarten. I did start in kindergarten, yeah, I knew that. Uh, so um, one of the gentlemen that I worked with, um, his son was four or five years old, and every day as he would leave to go to work, his son would stand at the door and just have an absolute meltdown and try to drag him back in. Finally, this goes on, and he says, what, what's the concern? And his son says, bad guys are in factories. Now stop and think about that for a second, right? This is a child's mind. But what do you see, whether you're watching Scooby-Doo, where do all the guys go, right? They're abandoned factories. If you're watching Terminator, where did all the Terminators go? It's abandoned factories. And so in a, in a very simple mind, it, you know, this, is, this is the view of manufacturing that, that the world has. And so you know, to, to transition that mindset, um, I also recently read an article that you know, we've done the right things as a society to promote STEM careers. And so parents are very excited about pushing their, their students in the direction of STEM. But then when you say, would you promote a manufacturing career for your student, they don't make the connection that STEM is manufacturing, or that's a great place to use that. So, so yeah, I'm always surprised, um, just because I've been in this space for so long, about the people who don't know about it. 
I'd echo those comments. I, I think that we always refer to the three Ds, the dark, dirty, dangerous, as the perception of a manufacturing environment. So opening the door and getting the students in to actually see the environment. I think the other thing that uh, we often hear is, well, I'm going to either choose a, a career in technology or manufacturing. So, so what I think students don't see is there's a bridge between technology and manufacturing. There's a tremendous amount of technology in manufacturing when you've got robots and lasers and additive manufacturing and, and computer numerical control machining equipment. So that's, that's eye-opening. And, and then I think the last thing is I think there's a perception sometimes with students is I'm going to be doing the same thing for the rest of my life in, in, in a job, in, in, a, in a factory type of position. And so seeing the fact that there's careers, there's, there's a connection between positions and building foundational knowledge uh, is, is really helpful for the students to see and changes those perceptions. And Linda, with the businesses that you're working with um, in their in, in apprenticeships, um, just can you talk about um, how it's helped them get new employees and fill those positions that they might have had a hard time filling? There, uh, yeah, it is actually used as a stopgap because there's such a need, especially for like mechanics. And so I've had a lot of discussions with people of how do you find mechanics? And what we, I've, I'm starting to see happen is the people that go for engineering who don't like college, they, don't, they just don't get it, are fantastic recruits to be able to fill some of those jobs because they get it. They like working with their hands. I have a nephew who has a four-year degree in engineering and he is now learning how to program because he wants to work with robots. So, but he, he also likes to work with his hands. So I'm seeing that it's finding the people that want to work with their hands and see that promotion. I see what the positive thing that's happening is that companies are starting to change their culture so that people have a career path. I don't just go and I'm not stuck at the machine unless it's what I want to do. Some people want to do that. That's great. But there's other people that want to move up. Well, let's give you that career pathway inside the company so you can see where you can go. And here are the steps. And here are the steps that you need to do to get it and, and keep moving up. That sounds good. And Jeff, yeah. I know one thing that you said is that you're not looking for a return on your investment with these young kids. Can you just explain why, why that is? So, so we, we do use the analogy and we say, you know, from the, the manufacturing pool, the, the talent, it's like a, a, a pond that's been overfished, right? So you can throw more hooks into the pond you, and you can put sweet in the bait, but if the, the talent isn't in that pond, you've got to do something to change that. So, so from a you know, manufacturer uh, uh, partnership with the other companies around the Cleveland area, you know, we, we realize that that's a responsibility, community responsibility. So on, on, and we realize that the, that talent may come to my company, but it may also go to somebody else's company. And we're not going to argue over you know, where, where they wind up. The, the end goal is to put, bring more people into the manufacturing environment uh, or give them exposure to that, and, as well as I think uh, there's um, People that may not go directly into Lincoln Electric or to a manufacturing career, they may go off to college, but they're going to be looking for experiential learning as they go through their technical program. So, so we're, it's hard to measure the return on investment putting education into a specific group of students. But as Lori mentioned, we, we do see immediately we saw that the juniors that were going through the program talked up to the seniors who were not in the program, and suddenly we had 10 applicants last summer coming right out of high school on, in, in one of the high schools uh, interested in a manufacturing career. So, uh. they, re they really want to hear from somebody that looks like them that's had an experience. That's what they want. And so Dr. Howes mentioned in, in her um, speech that you guys need to really start marketing yourselves in, in the eighth grade or in middle school. Um, 
can you just talk a little about um, how you guys might be working with with uh, the school districts to make sure that kids are getting the, the education they need to go and work in your companies uh, with the STEM you know, classes or math classes so that they're ready when they can take these apprenticeships. So we've recently had a request from one of the local districts um, to get as low as sixth grade, which um, you know, is, is exciting, the fact that we've got some folks who are very interested in that. And one of the things we've done is work with that sixth grade science teacher to say, what are the elements of common core math or science that you're touching upon in that grade level? And then where can we demonstrate the, the use of that skill in the manufacturing floor? So we've not yet worked out all the, all the bugs of exactly how we're going to try to do that, whether it's videos and pushing in and talking to the students or uh, bringing them on site. But we definitely say, hey, you do a whole, um, a whole module on angles. Well, we can show you how that relates to tooling relationships in machining or metallurgy and, and how does that relate to what we're doing. So that's, it's, an, it's new for us to be at that grade level, um, but it's definitely important because you need kids talking about it to go home to have parents talking about it to then have it be acceptable right. at the point that you've got to now make a career decision. Yeah, I actually had a, a trigonometry teacher, high school teacher in my facility watching a weld procedure and he said, who knew you used right angle projections in a welding procedure? Now I can go back and tell my kids, this is how you're really gonna use this. And then what do, what do you think needs to happen with parents? I mean, we've been brainwashed as parents that kids need to go to college, four-year degree, but you know, that's expensive. And you know, you guys offer programs, especially at Swagelock and Lincoln, where the tuition reimbursement type things and other companies are offering that. So how do we do you, do you guys need to go about marketing this to parents so that they can tell their kids like you guys should do this or you, you know four-year degree is not necessarily the only path so we we do from a factory tour perspective we open the door to parents and when we do interviews we also open the door to allowing the parents to to bring junior along and and take a tour of the plant prior to the interview so that because we realize that there's got to be some you know um, some buy-in from the parents particularly there's some direction that comes from there so parents you know, are, are they're looking for stability they're looking for a, a career a future for for their their son or daughter and so seeing the environment they in many cases many of the parents have not been exposed at all to the manufacturing environment either and so so it's it's enlightening for for both and I think they'll you know that's that's an outreach that's viable Okay, well, thank you. Well, I'm Darielle Snipes, a reporter and producer at IdeaStream, and today we are listening to a forum, forum on apprenticeships. Now, we're about to begin our audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. So that's at the City Club, and our staff will try to work that into the program. Holding the microphones today are marketing and outreach coordinator Julia Wong and content coordinator Bliss Davis. And we will welcome our first question. Yes, uh, in what you were talking about, is there any room for um, foreign-born students and H-1B visas, or is that a totally different animal? I'm smiling because, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, with Manufacturing Works, we're looking at, we, we take things from the employer standpoint, and it is, it is wanting to get everyone involved. I have one location that they have a fantastic woman that doesn't have her GED, 
She's worked for years, but now we're building in the GED in with everything else. Um, and, it's, and it's good to go. I mean, the H-1B sponsorship, of course, is on the company. Um, but yeah, this is for everyone. This is, and we, there's a lot of wraparound services that if English is their second language, we've got a lot of support services that can help people with increasing their, their ability to understand and learn in English um, and keep them going because it, uh, to me, it doesn't matter. If you wanna be a craftsman and you wanna use your hands to make stuff that makes stuff that makes stuff, yeah, bring them on. How's that? I would, I would just echo those comments. So our, our focus has primarily been the local communities. Um, however, we do um, host individuals with those types of uh, certificates or backgrounds. And, and really, we, we have 60 manufacturing facilities in 20 countries. So uh, uh, providing that work experience at the high school or uh, community college level, and, and they potentially may wind up connecting with us and some of our other manufacturing facilities around the world as well. Um, when we look at those who are unemployed, there is a significant portion of those who cannot find work, be, uh, and that is the re-entry population. Can you speak to what kind of trends you see, especially when you're talking about employers who are not bidding on jobs because they cannot find someone, but on the other hand, are they hiring someone who's checking that box? So I'd I can, I can take that one. Um, we're seeing a lot of employers now who are changing their thinking about former offenders. And they're allowing, where, where maybe they had policy before that they wouldn't consider those people, that they're desperate enough that they are considering those people. Uh, we actually have apprenticeship programs across the nation in several of our prison systems. And so we, we know that people can be ready for work when they exit, um, you know, prison, but we have to have companies that are willing to give these folks a shot. The, the best employers that can do this are your small business owners, you know, because they can make their own rules and they can do what they want to do. So, um, so, so I think that, that companies are having to rethink about re-entry population because they're desperate for skilled labor. And there's a population of people that work through Ohio Means Jobs as an example and there's funding available to either go through community colleges or technical centers to get uh, what's known as an industry-recognized apprenticeship certificate. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a certificate with uh, you know, to specific credentials, and it gets people from no skill whatsoever to some entry-level skill to at least be able to operate machine as a machine operator, come in at least uh, you know on, on the ground running. So. So we, we tap into those uh, sources of talent as well. Towards employment will help with that too. Mm -hmm. just so we've got a lot of res it's a lot of resources. It's just employers have to figure out where those resources are, and that's part of what my job is, and is in our, our our whole organization is to help connect employers with the resources they didn't know were out there. Right. And there are you know. federal tax credits if you hire a former offender. Yeah. For your company. Yeah. I'd say we also work with. I mean, you mentioned towards. We mentioned we work with TORDS to make sure that they have the right set of skills that they're training to in order to help to prepare those folks. So we provide that up front. Um, a lot of what's going on in the region in workforce development is really um, reactive. You know, we're trying to catch up. And obviously, uh, Jeff, you touched upon a little bit, we're moving towards an additive manufacturing and more IoT. 
what can we do as a region to be more proactive mm -hmm. so when manufacturing is fully moved to that area, when those sixth graders are ready to enter the workforce, they're prepared for that. And secondly, have we has manufacturing ever looked at moving towards more of a healthcare style workday, whether it's working four 10-hour days or seven days off, seven days off to, um, to attract more younger generation? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a little bit of that. We're having some conversations around that internally. So in 2017, SwageLock hired 1,000 um, members of our hourly workforce, which is, is huge. Um, and we talked about, you know, though right now things are, are fairly stable in terms of hiring, um, we do expect things to pick up at some point in, in 2019. And how will we be better equipped for that ramp in terms of hiring? And we've had to talk about a lot of, a lot of potential options that may work differently for the workforce. Um, and I don't know that we've got, you know, the, the finalized plan, but there's definitely, we need, we recognize that we need to be that creative. We need to be on the front end of that for our hourly workforce. Some of the smaller companies I work with, they're already doing four tens so that people get three day weekends or they get four day weekends. I have one company that's doing like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you get Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then you work Tuesday through, and there people are getting really creative because they understand that they've got to change their culture and that concept of what work means. Or they're or they're working Monday, Tuesday, they're doing four tens, and then Fridays overtime. It's not mandatory, but it's optional. And I bet I haven't asked, but I bet a lot of people show up for that Friday half day overtime. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm so glad you're here. Um, uh, I'm on the State Board of Education, and uh, one thing that I always think about when I hear people talking about, I heard you earlier say there's an interest gap. Um, I truly believe there's an awareness gap. And um, when we talk about uh, involving people of color, how how do you go about marketing this using institutions that are already in place, such as our faith community, mm -hmm. which comes in touch with a lot of people, but I, don't, I very seldom hear um, our faith community talking about this kind of important information. So how do you use the institutions, especially when you're trying to reach people of color? That's a great question. We have not tapped on that. So we're learning very quickly in the last couple of years just out of desperate need. So we have been involved with uh, local preachers and we've been to local services and, and, and we've also uh, reached out to council individuals, council uh, people, um, trying to think of some of the other outreaches, but um, it's so, certainly social media. Um, but, and then I would just say that, you know, in terms of this magnet program, it is specifically focused on an area that I would say is traditionally void of vocational school um, uh, offerings and to, to make sure that we're outreaching specifically to those communities uh, where we haven't tapped into um, proactively as well as we could have. And, and I would add that at the National Fund, we're really looking at apprenticeship under an equity lens, right? What are ways that, what are things we can do in local communities to get more un, underrepresented populations into these great programs where people can make a livable wage? And, and, and for, for women, too. I mean, you know, what I tell my young female apprentices are, you never have to depend on anybody. You can pay your own bills. Um, and so, so really we're doing a lot of, of, of looking at how we recruit young people into these programs. 
uh, I was actually in Greensboro in August at a Guilford Apprenticeship Partner signing ceremony, and they had increased their diversity rate from that group up by 47% from the year before. So I got all the kids behind me and we did a selfie, right? So I could just show the diversity of the group and we blasted it out on Twitter. And you wouldn't believe the replies I got to that. Like the first year group was all young white males. The third year group was the most diverse group you could ask for. So really changing the way you recruit the kids into the programs and looking at different faith-based organizations, Title I schools, these sorts of things to really reach uh, kids who are underrepresented. I had an employer that had that. They were they went to get more women involved into the um, machinist, into 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 fixing things, and they're talking like, I don't know why I can't get women to do it. I said, Well, do you ever have just a, a like a machine petting zoo, uh, for 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 just the women? And they go, No. And I said, I you need to try it because a group of women together looking at machines and fixing things will be a lot different than if you have a if you have a mixed sex class. I'm interested to see if they actually did it, but I've done that a couple of times before, and it makes a big difference. Women are much different when they're by themselves and there's no guy going, oh, you can't do that, give me that screwdriver. You know, I know I, know I can get my husband's response if I walk around with a hammer. <laughs> I, he'll be, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> um, when he's not home, I can, work, I can use a hammer just fine. When he's home, for some reason, I'm not allowed to touch it. So it's that same thing in the workplace. Right. We need to encourage same, that. Same. You know, we've recently opened, um, about 12 months ago, we opened a makerspace within our Swage Lock facility, or our, our Solon facility. And it's really interesting to see the gender diversity that comes in and out of that space mm -hmm. because um, I think, quite honestly, our, our female population is just more curious about how it works because um, they're not necessarily doing it every day. So they're in using the engraving machines and the 3D printers and, I mean, my team made me a beautiful, like, laser etched, you know, Christmas gift. So, I mean, they, they do a fantastic job. Years ago from this podium, Lester Thoreau, who was <clears throat> then the dean of the MIT School of uh, Management, said, in the future there will be low-tech products and high-tech products, but there will only be high-tech process. And that has stayed with me for hmm, 35 years, I guess. Uh, it seems to me there should be a good answer to the question I'm about to ask. Have you begun to offer to people who maybe begin in a purely manu manual capacity a true vision of what a career looks like, where there is a way to begin in the most mundane sort of role, but in fact graduate to something that is very intellectually and personally challenging and fulfilling for a career? Do you have a career vision for somebody who begins in that humble way? Yeah, so we talk about it in terms of career strategy. Um, a lot of roles will talk about career ladders. Uh, we actually talk at Swagelock about a career jungle gym, if you will. Um, the, the benefit that we have is our most of our uh, team is here in Northeast Ohio. So you can move building to building, which in the hourly space will get you from this kind of machine to that kind of machine will move you from assembly to auxiliary to machining um, throughout the organization, but that also works for us in the office side as well. So my background is all operations. I actually joined Swagelock um, with manufacturing responsibility within one of our, our main buildings, and then about eight months ago moved into an HR role. Um, 
which really is the funnest space I've ever, I mean, this, this bridge between operations and HR is really, I have the best job in the whole company. So. I think she's stuck. She's going to stay in workforce development. Now. I think I might. I think I might. Um, but yeah, we, we do offer that, that progression and we're very happy to train individuals who are performing internally. So we have, um, you know, we, maybe earlier we talked about apprenticeship versus internship. We happen to be large enough to be able to offer a lot of that skills development training internally. And so we can take folks from role to role or progression within their role. Uh, we're able to offer that. I would say we've been intentional in two ways. One is in, um, to expose our current employees to uh, individuals in different parts of the company where they can talk about our promote from within policy and where what knowledge they gained over what period of time to get to the levels or different positions that they've been in. The other thing is we're really focused on providing a visual map also for people to see versus just hear uh, what, what knowledge and what if you have a gap, how do you obtain that knowledge? Make sure that we have uh, uh, equal opportunity to gain that knowledge throughout the organization to move to whatever level you're choosing to move to. So just more visual mapping. And when I have the opportunity, I have those critical conversations with, with my smaller businesses of you've got to, this is, this is part of it. Like as one of the guys I talked with, he goes, I got to do something, anything, which, did, which sort of made me feel good. But he instituted an apprenticeship because he knew he had to solve problems and this brought in the structure that he needed to start building that base of you start here, you move to here, you move to here, you move to here. Yeah. Yes, my question is for the two employers, uh, Jeff and Lori. Um, what we know is as employers, you're going to make a significant investment. It's an investment of people, it's an investment of money, resources, everything. Can you help us better understand what your expectations are in one, the decision to make the investment, and then what are the expectations of the employer as to your return on investment? In other words, I think that we need to better understand what motivates you to do this, and then what type of return on investment are you looking for in doing these types of programs? So specific to the high school program, if we looked at it as a pure payback standpoint, again, I think uh, initially we started with eight GIN students, we're up to 16, that includes the John Marshall students. So initially when we ran numbers, we said for the investment we're making, probably payback, bringing on two of the eight would be a straight straight line pay, payback. But, but I, again, I say, I think we're pleasantly surprised with uh, the unintended consequence of the individuals coming through the program that became the best salespeople for other individuals within the schools and, and generated a return on investment from that standpoint. So, um, so I mean, that, that I, I, we were tasked when, when we decided to participate in this program, there was no specific return on investment that was a critical um, decision on whether we were going to continue with the program or not. This is something that's really out of necessity going forward, I think, it's paradigm shift for our company. Yeah, we address the, the ECEC participation very much the same way where um, it's really about promoting manufacturing and manufacturing careers. Um, whereas some of the, the direct technical programs that we work with, we do look to have um, a number of offers out to those students and we do expect them to stay. And their, their retention rate is higher. Um, they promote farther faster than candidates who come to us through other pipelines. And so that's where we continue to make that investment because it, it, they're, the, they're the best candidates that we can, that we can find just growing them in-house. In
at the City Club. We've been enjoying a forum on apprenticeships in the 21st century featuring Dr. Pamela Howes, Program Director of Work-Based Learning for the National Fund for Workforce Solutions, Linda Dichkevich, Apprenticeship Program Manager for Manufacturing Works, Jeff Lipnevichis, Senior Manager of Workforce Development at the Lincoln Electric Company, and Lori Pogel, <laughs> Manager of Hourly Workforce Development at Swagelock. And that brings us to the end of our forum. I want to thank our panelists and our moderator. I want to thank all of you for joining us today, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.